Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 191. We'll begin the Proverbs with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 4 and follow with some thoughts about wisdom. Yeah, that's specific enough. I've often said that the verbal tradition, you know, the Torah, Shabbat, Peh, the Mishnah, the Talmud, that they were Twitter before Twitter. Both Mishnah and Talmud relied on memory and repetition, which demanded brevity and clarity in intent and expression. Twitter used to make similar demands. When you had to get your ideas across in 140 characters or less, you had to come correct. Now, with double the characters and Twitter storms, it's basically just a blogging platform for people with, you know, short attention spans. But if Mishnah and Talmud were the Twitter before Twitter, Proverbs was the Twitter before that. Proverbs or Mishlei is regarded as wisdom literature alongside the Psalms and the book of Job. The wisdom offered by Proverbs has no national implications, nor does it reference historical events. So nothing about the Jewish people, the land of Israel, the Exodus, or receiving the Torah, none of that. It's directed to people as individuals. And it seeks to ground people in a world in which faith in God is essential and critical, but the individual is at the center. Wisdom literature tackles the big questions like why do the righteous suffer? why we exist, and the role of God in human affairs, and does so in a unique way, through pithy maxims and poems. Based on the questions it tackles, one can subdivide the genre into two, theoretical and didactic. We'll focus on the didactic, which sets out to teach and instruct and is by nature optimistic, because if a person was irredeemable, what's the point of teaching them? This is what Proverbs are all about. For such a small book, comparatively, it's only 31 chapters long, it divides into nine sections. The first section, which includes chapters 1 through 9, are titled Mishle Shlomo ben David, or the Proverbs of Shlomo, son of David, king of Israel, and serve as an introduction to the main section of the book, chapters 10 through 22. It speaks in two voices, that of the didactic father teaching his son, using the command tense in Hebrew, and the second, the feminine voice of wisdom, which speaks and speechifies. Section 2 is also titled Mishle Shlomo and drops bars. The prevalence of one-line adages might suggest that this section was sort of an anthology, although there really isn't any kind of organizational scheme here. Shlomo just riffs mostly about righteousness and evil, reward and punishment, and other weighty matters. The third section, titled Divrei Chachamim, or The Words of the Wise, covers chapters 22 through 24. Uh, and it strongly parallels Egyptian wisdom literature, specifically the instructions of Amene Mopet, which was composed during the Ramesside period, roughly 1300 to 1075 BCE. Section 4, entitled Gam Ele Divrei Chachamim, or These Two Are for the Wise, covers the rest of chapter 24 and serves as a sort of appendix to the previous section. Here again, we hear the father turning to his son to speechify. Section 5, entitled Gam Ele Mishle Shlomo Asher Heetiku Anshe 
or these two are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judea, transcribed. Covers chapters 25 through 29. It is filled with aphorisms. Sections 6 through 8 are delineated by their titles and stand apart from the rest because they are not attributed to Shlomo, but non-Jewish sages and lean toward the more theoretical kinds of questions about the world. They're also a bit more skeptical, cynical, and pessimistic. And finally, section 9, entitled Eshet Chayil, or A Woman of Valor, covers chapter 31. It's an acrostic poem that praises the wise woman who embodies all the attributes of wisdom mentioned in the previous 30 chapters. Two more things by way of introduction. Number one we will encounter the traditional proverb pattern that occurs frequently in Proverbs. It goes like this, better X than Y. Here's an example from chapter 17, quote, better a dry crust with tranquility than a house filled with feasting and quarrel. Nice. Rendering these pithy Hebrew maxims into English is especially challenging because, you know, translation, but also because Proverbs uses a set of overlapping terms for wisdom on the one hand and for foolishness or stupidity on the other, so it's kind of a challenge. Also, the thing with Proverbs as a book and Proverbs as a, as a device is how compact they are. They were definitely Twitter before Twitter, and they deploy sound play, that is, alliteration, assonance, and occasional internal rhyme. All of this kind of gets lost in the English. Also, there's been a change in thinking about when Proverbs was added to the canon. Up until the 20th century, Proverbs, scholars believed, came late to the canon because of its subject matter. Compared to the plot-driven narratives, lawmaking, and prophecies in Torah and prophets, wisdom literature seems to have come from a more refined, sophisticated time, perhaps as late as the Second Temple period, when Jews were awash in Babylonian, Persian, and Greek cultures. However, with the discovery of Egyptian wisdom literature, specifically the instructions of Amene Mopet from the Ramesside period, the timeline has been resolved considerably. The author of Proverbs surely appropriated from Amene Mopet, which would put him in a time long before the Second Temple period. In other words, the wisdom of Proverbs goes way back. And so, with that in mind, engage. Chapter 1 begins with Mishle Shlomo ben David, the Proverbs of Shlomo, son of David, the king of Israel, whose only request from God when he was you know, before became king, was wisdom. So here he's going to lay out exactly why you're reading this book. Quote, To know wisdom and reproof, to understand discerning maxims, to accept the reproof of insight, righteousness, justice, and uprightness, to give shrewdness to the simple, to a lad, knowledge, and cunning. This is good for you, dear reader slash listener, because, quote, the fear of Adonai is the beginning of knowledge. So Shlomo gets down to basics, as a parent would with their child, quote, hear my son, your father's reproof, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Lesson number one, avoid wicked people, because wickedness is like a boomerang. You put it out there with your actions, but it will soon return upon you, quote, yet they lie and wait for their own blood. They lurk for their own lives. Thus are the ways of all who chase gain, its possessor's life it will take. Then the voice of wisdom chimes in, a reproach for those who will not listen to her. Quote, How long, dupes, will you love being duped, and scoffers lust scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Because, she continues, quote, Who heeds me will dwell secure and tranquil from the fear of harm. 
Chapter 2 puts the choice to you directly. If you follow the righteous path, you can expect God to look out for you. Quote, cunning will watch over you. Discernment will keep you to save you from a way of evil from a man who speaks perversely. But there will also be those folks out there who try and derail you, like the evil man who turns the world order upside down. Definitely avoid that guy. But you should also avoid a, quote, smooth-talking alien woman. Chapter 3 reiterates the message, quote, My son, do not forget my teaching and let your heart keep my commands. That would be a good idea, as well as the other tips and hacks like, quote, trust in Adonai with all your heart, or, quote, happy the man who has found wisdom and the man who acquires discernment, for her worth is better than silver's worth and her yield better than fine gold. Because if you embrace wisdom, quote, then you shall walk secure on your way and your foot shall not be bruised. If you lie down, you shall not be afraid. You shall lie down and your sleep shall be sweet. Or, quote, Don't say to your friend, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give when you have it. Or, quote, don't quarrel with a man for no reason if he has done you no harm. Or, quote, don't envy a man of violence and don't choose any of his ways. And finally, quote, don't plot harm against your fellow when he dwells secure along. And before he wraps the chapter, a quick one about reward and punishment. Quote, as for the scoffers, he scoffs at them, but to the humble, he grants favor. The wise inherit honor, and fools take away disgrace. Every time I pour over a string of particularly pointed aphorisms and proverbs, and there will be many, many more in the episodes to come, I imagine them printed in cursive on what seems to be a frame piece of weathered timber available for purchase at Bed Bath & Beyond or wherever fine inspirational quotes are sold. And the thing is, it makes sense because, as I said earlier, Proverbs is meant to guide us. And because Shlomo sees us as perfectible, he's going to take a largely optimistic tone and be encouraging and uplifting which makes for good plaques that folks love to hang up in their kitchens or, you know, those light boxes with letters you can switch out like the marquee of a movie theater. It doesn't minimize the wisdom of the words. It's just a little sad that wisdom is so readily trivialized through crass commodification. For me, wisdom, like information, should be a commons, like the air we breathe or food or a place to live. It's something we all need to live with dignity. It should be free of the market and its pernicious forces. Marxist rant over. But what is the essence of all wisdom? Can we boil it down to a simple adage? Can it indeed be captured by a plaque or a light box? Perhaps. In Plato's The Apology, he relates how Socrates and his pal Chaerophon visited the oracle at Delphi. Chaerophon asks the oracle if anyone is wiser than Socrates. The oracle responds and says that Socrates is the wisest person. Socrates is puzzled by this answer since there are so many other people in the community who are well known for their extensive knowledge and wisdom. I'm an extremely stable genius. And it's also well known that Socrates maintains that he doesn't know anything. So Socrates decides to get to the bottom of this. Perhaps in the process, he'll either debunk the claims of the oracle or the claims of the folks in his community, most likely the latter. He interrogates politicians, poets, and craftsmen and discovers that in fact, when it comes to knowledge and wisdom, these folks 
fall short of their claims. The folks who seem to outdo the average are the craftsmen. They have a deep knowledge and wisdom about their craft, but Socrates discovers that they also claim to know things far beyond the scope of their expertise. The only one that delivers what they promise is Socrates. As he famously quipped, I know that I know nothing. So one might think that for the Greeks, wisdom is tied up somehow with humility. That is, one is wise if they believe they are not wise. But if this was true, Socrates would have simply dismissed the oracle's pronouncement because if all humble people were wise, the bar would be pretty low. And wisdom's bar is... He believes the oracle because the oracle tells the truth. He may not brag about his wisdom, but he believes on some level that he is wise. And I guess because he's wise, he understands that there's something unclear about what wisdom is if he has it and others don't. And as we all know from personal experience, there are people who believe they are not wise because they're actually not wise. So perhaps Socrates' understanding of wisdom is rooted in accuracy, not humility. That is, the poets, politicians, and craftsmen all believe they have knowledge about things they actually don't know. But Socrates is wise because he would say that he has knowledge about a thing when, and only when, he really does have knowledge about it. But one could see that there's a limit to this stance, too. Let's say I am a generally ignorant person. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. But I have a deep and profound knowledge about paperclips. If you work with office supplies, this subject may be of some importance to you, but for most people, paperclips do not command a place in the pantheon of important things to know. Okay, so when it comes to any other burning issue of the day, don't ask me, I got nothing. But I am the master and maven of paperclips. And I know what I know about paperclips down to the last digit of the skew number. But that doesn't make me wise. It makes me an expert about paperclips. So could being knowledgeable about important things make me wise? Maybe. But what if what I know about important things are just basic facts? Does having a mastery of trivia about important things make me a wise person or even a functional person in the world? Wouldn't I need to be able to apply that knowledge in the world? And wouldn't that ability to apply knowledge make me wise? So, perhaps, knowing how to live well in the world makes me wise. This idea comes to us from Aristotle and his Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle calls this practical wisdom. But again, without the ability to apply it successfully, even practical wisdom doesn't get you very far. So perhaps a person is wise if... They have extensive factual and theoretical knowledge. They know how to live well. They are successful at living well and have very few inaccurate beliefs. But I wonder, could an evil person meet all these conditions? I went to an Ivy League school. I'm very highly educated. I know words. I have the best words. It's clear how Shlomo would respond to this question of what is the essence of wisdom. And it would not need any qualification. And Socrates tugging on the threads to expose the seams. For Shlomo, the essence of all wisdom begins with fearing God. Quote, Then will you understand Adonai's fear, and you will find the knowledge of God. Shlomo returns to this point again, quote, Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear Adonai. 
And since the fear of Adonai is the essence of wisdom, one could argue that the converse is also true. A person striving to acquire wisdom will understand what the fear of Adonai is. The expression, the fear of Adonai, could mean that the person who fears God demonstrates an extraordinary degree of piety and moral worth. For example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus, who defied Paro's order for them to kill infants, did so because, quote, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. In Deuteronomy, Moshe tells the people, quote, and now, O Israel, what does Adonai your God demand of you? Only this, to revere Adonai your God, to walk only in his path, to love him, and to serve Adonai your God with all your heart and soul. We will meet Eov soon, and when we delve into the book of Job, you know, chapter 1 will describe Eov as, quote, wholehearted and upright, and one that feared God and shunned evil. And later in that book, Eov speaks and recounts how God spoke to humanity and said, quote, See, fear of Adonai is wisdom, to shun evil is understanding. The rabbis later expressed this concept as yirat shamayim, the fear of heaven which is to say one who fears heaven is determined to carry out God's will and not sin. They also understood this fear as having two faces, two aspects, fear of punishment and fear of being in the presence of the awesome, the almighty, that is God, creator of the universe. Fear of God is a state of mind and an ethical attitude, but it's closely connected with two additional concepts, action and love. Action is key to have this wisdom and keep it to yourself or compartmentalize it so it has no impact on your actions and how you interact with the world, well, that wouldn't be very wise of you, would it? But as importantly, and this is a radical departure from the Greeks, it's the deep connection between fearing God and loving God. It is essentially from these twin sources that we find the essence of wisdom. And if you think about it, it's really love that motivates action, not fear. Though both Fear and love are emotional responses. Fear paralyzes. Love energizes. Think about what we don't do out of fear. Then think about what we're capable of doing out of love or the things we actually do for love. Like walking in the rain and the snow when there's nowhere to go when you're feeling like a part of you is dying. Shlomo will be sending a lot more wisdom our way in the coming chapters. But it wouldn't be worth all the plaques in Bed Bath & Beyond if he didn't start us off with something memorable and something foundational. Like we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 192 when we continue in the Proverbs with chapters 4 through 7.